0: Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. This week's topic is sponsored by Coral Dynamics. Coral Dynamics specializes in quality, captive-propagated corals, clownfish, cardinals, and seahorses. Make sure you check out CoralDynamics.com to find out about all the great stuff that they have to offer. So how many of you have goniopora, or have ever had a species of goniopora in your tank? I'm sure you've all seen all the different rumors and all the different information on how to keep these corals alive. Well, in this show, we're joined by a special guest, John Kelly. John is the owner and founder of Ghaniapura.org, a site dedicated to the research and education uh, and preservation of Ghaniapura corals. Uh, we're going to talk to him for a little bit today, and we're going to learn all about the research that he's done and a lot of the information that's involved in keeping these and so forth. So without further ado, let's welcome John to the show. John, welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast.
1: Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be on the program.
0: Great. Now, John, can you take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became so interested in the Ganiyapura? Uh
1: Well, I live in Springfield, Missouri. I've kept a number of freshwater tanks for the past 25 years from an early age. I did uh, set up a small saltwater tank back in the early 1980s, which lasted maybe a year. (laughs) And then uh, I rejoined the hobby again about three years ago, starting with a 29-gallon tank. And now I have a 75-gallon tank, a 55-gallon tank, a 29-gallon tank, and several... 10-gallon
0: tanks. So how many tanks do you have all altogether?
1: Uh, five, and then about five more empty ones in the
0: basement. Oh, great. <laughs> well, you started the same place I did. I started with a 29-gallon tank also.
1: And uh, Well, the, the 29-gallon t- tank that I a- actually started in the saltwater hobby with, I've had for years and years, and I've been thinking about using that tank as a saltwater tank for probably the last 10 years. I just have moved around so much, that, and there was nowhere to really set it up, because I knew that... Complications with saltwater hobby over the freshwater. Yeah, but, uh,
2: yeah.
1: Never got that set yeah. up.
0: Great. Well, um, okay. Well, let's let's. We're here to talk about goniopora. So let, let's start off with the basics. Can you take a minute and tell us about the goniopora?
1: Goniopora is actually a name given to a genus of corals uh, that contains at least several dozen identified and documented species. Uh, hobbyists often call them flower pot corals. Uh, they have a calcareous skeleton that's surrounded by thin, delicate tissue. They have polyps at the ends of the polyps, small mouths. There's 24 tentacles that surround the mouth, and you can distinguish Goniopora from alveopora, which looks very similar,
0: by looking at the number of tentacles. The uh, alveopora 24... only have 12, correct? Right. Yeah. Right. And, which is something that they're they're commonly confused with each other. If people don't know that one that one fact there.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, a lot of new hobbyists uh, get the two confused, and actually on, I frequent quite a few different forums, and that is probably one of the most common questions. What type of flowerpot coral is this? Right, like Alveopora, right. Ghaniopora, they're very similar, and some of the needs are very mm-hmm. similar between the two, but uh, in my opinion, Goniopora is the most difficult coral to keep in captivity. There's quite a few problems that Alveopora doesn't seem to have, but Goniopora gotcha. does.
0: gotcha. And you've been doing a lot of research um, on the Goniopora genus corals, and can you take a minute, uh, a minute and kind of highlight some of the research efforts that you have been working on or that you are working on?
1: My research has been, over the period of 15 months, I keep about 12 different species and 15 different individual Goniopora corals in uh, various stages of health. I experiment with different settings, different tanks, um, I've tried several different salts, uh, skimmers, uh, skim- skimmerless systems, systems with skimmers, all types of filtration, all types of food. I've photographed, observed, experimented, documented, a little little bit of everything. Purpose is to fully understand Goniopora. And I think that is lacking uh, in the hobby is a, is a full understanding of the coral.
2: Right. And the only
1: way to really do that is by observing and... Working with Documenting and experimenting, exactly.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the things that I wanted to mention is you have a a website set up um, where you do put a a lot of, at least some of your information, and you've got some forms set up. Did you want to take a minute and plug that website?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, It's www.gonipora.org. I set it up last July, and it's kind of been evolving. I put up most of the important information I guess for years, there has been various sources of information for goniopora to, to refer to for new hobbyists or people that uh-huh. have just bought a, a new goniopora coral. And whenever they do research, I've noticed that there is a, a huge amount of confusing and contradicting information available, depending on what books you reference or what
2: websites I mean, you're at and
0: what people yeah, are talking exactly. to. You. Yeah. I've I've seen the same thing. I know that probably over a year ago, uh, one of the first coral I, I succumbed to the same thing. It's a ooh pretty coral, gimme gimme, and I got it and it was Ganipora and you know, didn't realize what I got myself into. And then I go on to go online and I realize that you know, for every website that I found and every person I talked to was, there was that many different ways that people were talking about caring for them. So it was uh-huh. it was you know, just a confusion because it seemed like everybody was regurgitating everybody else's information and nobody really knew. So that's where drew, you drew my interest in the fact that you're actually sitting down and doing this research.
1: Right, and then what comes out of the research uh, I put onto the website and I've, I've tried to make an entire system of husbandry, mm-hmm. not just um, so that one, one particular species needs certain lighting Requirement or certain food, uh, I've, I've tried to develop a whole system that, and and that's actually one reason why I have so many different species is trying to find something that works for all of them.
0: Right, and that system we're gonna, I think we're gonna get into that in a little bit more detail for everybody to understand. Um, you're gonna be doing a a uh, presentation soon. Um, you want to uh-huh. take a minute and mention that real quick?
1: Uh, it's called Goniapora: A New Beginning, Changing Good Luck into Good Skill. Uh, it's going to be at the International Marine Aquarium Conference in Chicago.
0: Also known as IMAC.
1: Right, also known as IMAC at the end of April this month. And I uh, have quite a bit of information that is not on my website that I'm going to present at that presentation, uh, including some uh, interesting map of uh, Goni wasting, different ways that they Go from a healthy coral to an unhealthy coral and die. Uh, other irritations. Uh, lots of photographs. Everything's been photographed. So I, have, I have thousands of photographs. I'll probably have about a hundred for my presentation.
0: Awesome. So, if any of the listeners are going to be in um, in the area or going to be going to IMAC this year, make sure you you uh, check out this uh, presentation, get this information, and stuff like that. Okay, so basically we've kind of covered what the goniopora is um and some of the challenges that are associated with it. Can you take a minute and kind of talk about some of the problems that we encounter uh that we face with these corals in our tanks, kind of going through a couple of the major and minor issues. Um let's let's start with the major issues. Can you what what's the first major issue that you have found to be an issue with with Ganapora in our in our aquariums?
1: Mm-hmm. One of the major problems that occurs with zoning pora would be light overexposure. It affects different species differently, but it can be identified by either a slow bleaching that occurs or a fast
0: bleaching. Now, when you say when you say light overexposure, do you mean that it's been exposed to light for too long, like a too long of a photo period, or that the light that it's being exposed to is just too intense for it?
1: Uh, the light is too, in- too intense. The corals receiving too intensive of light or possibly even ultraviolet radiation that's being emitted from the bulbs. Gotcha. Uh, in, the, in the instances that I've experienced it, I've been using metal halide lighting, uh, and, it's, and the corals are fairly close to the light. And then I, I do keep some lower, even of the same species. I uh-huh. keep some lower in the tank and some higher, and the ones up higher will tend to fade uh, there is one or two instances already that I've moved a coral just several inches toward the light, and it immediately bleached and immediately uh, suffered tissue damage.
0: Now, what um, temperature bulbs are you using when you encounter this? I use 10K bulbs. Okay. and I, I, uh, Is that the only ones you've tested with? Are you going to do further research with other temperatures? Uh-huh.
1: Um, during the research that I've done so far, I've only used 10K bulbs. Okay. Uh, In the future, the kind of the next phase is to experiment with different different lighting situations, different temperatures. Uh, I I actually do have, on a couple of other tanks, lower light levels, but I haven't experimented with different temperatures specifically.
0: Okay, so at this point, just to kind of recap what you're saying here, um, is that you've identified a potential issue with 10K metal halides. Where if they're up real high in the tank, that that lighting might be too intense for them. Now you're not saying that a 14k or a 20k bulb would do better or worse, just that specifically um, that you have encountered and been able to probably reproduce this issue using you know 10k metal halides. Um What what was the wattage that you're that you're working with, or have you tried different ones, and how far away? Uh, just a kind of average rough number. We were talking 8 inches, 6 inches, 10 inches from the light.
1: Uh, the the bulbs that this occurs under is 175 watt
2: okay.
0: metal
1: halide. I imagine that it, just kind of my own hypothesis would be that it, it will occur underneath different temperature bulbs. I believe it's just mainly the intensity. Okay. And... Uh, corals that this occurs with are 12 to 13 inches away from the light source. But that is the main body of the coral. And I've, th- I've thought about this before. When people reference or refer to the distance their coral is from the light.
0: Uh, ah, you're talking with, about the body of the tentacles.
1: Right, yeah. exactly. Gotcha. Because the tentacles, whenever they extend, well, if you've got 6-inch uh, polyps, actually, polyps right. and tentacles, yeah then you're that much closer to the light. They are that much closer to the light. Good point. And this bleaching has occurred mainly on on top of the coral uh, that's perpendicular to the light. And so I'm convinced that it's definitely the light. Uh, I have done several experiments that does reverse that by using shading. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, I think, let's see, maybe in 2002, Julian Sprung... Um, did some research or published a hypothesis on this problem of oxidative stress mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. suggested that iron and manganese could possibly reverse this problem. I have not used iron and manganese, and just by shading the coral has reversed the problem.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so... You know, basically we we've come on. Oh, the other question I wanted to ask was: um, Have you encountered any of these types of problems using anything other than metal halides? Have you tried, um, you know, the power compacts or VHOs or T5s or anything like that, or is it concentrated with the the power, uh, metal halides?
1: Uh, I haven't tried VHO. I, I was going to, but then my ballast went out. So I just (laughs) thought, well, it it would be better to do this research with the least number of variables, I guess, as possible. So I thought it was important to keep one bulb, one light, one wattage, Uh one temperature, and take it from there. Um, On some of my other tanks, I I have not had a a bleaching problem, but I've also been doing some low-light experiments, like Mm -hmm. 40-watt normal output.
0: Oh, interesting! Um,
1: Hundred watt PC, mm-hmm. and I have no problem with those. Good,
0: good. Um, well, let's let's kind of move on. Is there another major problem that you you wanted to like maybe the second biggest issue that people um, kind of run into?
1: I'd say the second biggest issue is tissue damage uh, okay. when when they're collected and then shipped and then arrive at the wholesaler and then. They go on to a a local fish store or to another online, to some type of an online retailer. They're handled. uh, They are bounced around in bags, I guess, Mm -hmm. Um, shipped in boxes, uh, rattled around. The the tissue is very delicate, and it can get torn easy or abraded. Um, And I would say that probably the second largest problem is tissue damage. Part of it is from handling, especially with certain species, where the only place to really grab them is around their perimeter.
0: Right, which is where uh, the tissue is also. Right, supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: And then another problem would be the, that also occurs around the perimeter of the of the coral is brown jelly,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: goniopora are notorious for contracting brown jelly. Most of the instances that I've seen brown jelly documented or tried to help other people with brown jelly has occurred or begun at the, at the perimeter base, yeah. of, the, of the coral. And another hypothesis that I have for that is that even if they arrived at a, at a fish store in perfect condition, if they are cut, just their growth form, if they're cut from a substrate in the wild where they have never touched sand or if they're cut from a rock or right. another colony where their perimeter has never touched sand, but they're cut short enough to look like a free-living specimen, then they're placed on the sand bed in fish stores. That tissue then begins to become infected. Uh, it's, it would be like taking a, an SPS coral upside down and sticking it down in the sand. Mm-hmm. You pull it out several days later, and it's dead.
2: Right. Uh,
1: and that's what I believe happens with Goniopora, is that that perimeter tissue begins to die and then whenever the coral is sold, it goes to the, the customer's tank, and they put it up on a rock possibly where there's now water circulation around that area, and the next thing you know, you have brown jelly.
0: Okay, so basically what, what you're getting there with the, with the tissue and the placement and the source of the, the goniopora is if when collected, the, the collectors were to actually cut that off of a main colony the the fragment that they take and they give to the local fish store has never been exposed to you know direct contact with your with a substrate of some kind so when it's put right. in the fish store and a person brings it home and puts it into their tank and plops it on their substrate it there's nothing with that that coral specifically it hasn't built up the ability to handle uh, being in direct contact with the substrate and re- the reverse of that also, if you have one that 's been used to the substrate and it 's put up somewhere else, we have the same problem
1: um, by placing gonipo up in the rockwork if it was originally a free living specimen, the free living specimens that i 've seen actually grow either thicker tissue around the perimeter mm-hmm. or it grows a little bit of tissue underneath the perimeter gotcha. so if you if you take a if you take a Either either or, actually, mm-hmm. uh, if you take a free-living specimen and put it in the rockwork or one that has been cut from the substrate, if you wedge it into the rocks where the tissue gets torn or damaged,
0: right, then
1: you also have a, um, the potential for infection.
0: Gotcha. Now, is, is there, and I don't know if we're going to get into this later, then that's fine, but I'll just bring it up real quick. Is there a way to identify, um, if you're in the, in the fish store, to quickly identify uh, whether the corals been free-living or whether it was cut from a colony. I know we're going to get into some of these later, so if you want to hold off on that, we can.
1: No, this would be a good time to talk about it, just briefly. The way to identify whether a coral is free-living or not is usually it would be a hemispherical uh, species, be Mm -hmm. kind of a ball-shaped. Sometimes the ball-shaped ones are actually cut from a column, uh, which then it would have some extra skeletal material or rock so that you wouldn't actually place it Place it so that the tissue is directly on the sand. Mm-hmm. It's mainly mm-hmm. green long polyped goniopora. The most common one would be Stokes eye. Okay. Uh, there is another one that I believe that's a common species.
2: Mm-hmm. Another
1: one that I believe is common in the hobby. It looks very similar to Stokes eye but hasn't really been identified. Is not widely identified would be, I, I believe it's pronounced pendulous. Okay. They're very similar. Both of them I believe can be either free-living or attached to a substrate.
0: Okay, so are we looking, when we're in the fish store looking at the specimen, are we looking for um, tissue that's being grown on the bottom or it being attached to extra material or, I mean, because I know the one, the one that I had basically looked like a softball that had been cut right in half, and it was, the tissue went right to the bottom, and I don't know, by the time I got it, I think it tucked in just a little bit. but the underside of it looked kind of like, it was real smooth, real soft, kind of like the, the inside of a, a clam shell or an oyster shell or something like that.
1: Right. It's actually, I believe they they get cut off purposely to look like a free living specimen. Okay. So sometimes it's really hard to tell. I mean, they might even grind the bottoms of them. I'm, I'm actually not sure. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to tell whether some of this different species have been cut off or not. Now, other species, it's obvious that their growth form is not right, the right. hemispherical, free-living specimen.
0: Yes, and I've seen uh, others that did not have that growth form, so I know what you're right. talking about there. So uh, uh, many times it, it really is
1: kind of difficult. I would look for a thickened tissue around the perimeter.
0: Okay. Now, with all that said, I mean, would it be safe to just make the statement that goniapora should be placed um, on rock work with all of their tissue away from other rocks um, and away from the substrate and stuff like that? I mean, would it just be simpler to kind of have a, I guess, a general rule that say Ghaniapura should be placed up on some kind of rock work or something?
1: I I guess if you can tell that it is a a specimen that's been cut from rock work, probably the best place to put it would be on rock work but mounted with some type of epoxy putty, possibly, um, I actually use the egg crate
0: mm-hmm.
1: and set them on there. And sometimes a little bit of the perimeter tissue touches, but it doesn't seem to.
0: irritate it at all? Uh,
1: right, exactly. Like, okay. like sands would. But originally, I think it was recommended to place Goniampora on the sand bed so that they could receive whatever mysterious food they needed to receive. <laughs> yeah. And uh, possibly to keep them away from the light. But but I think it's mainly uh, to receive nutrition.
0: But by doing
1: that, then you also place them in this other situation with the perimeter tissue,
0: Gotcha. which
1: then leads to brown jelly. So it's kind of a dilemma.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, um, let's take a minute and talk a little bit more about caring for these corals. Um, Again, I think it should be mentioned for everybody who hasn't picked it up already that these corals are not recommended for beginners. They, They require very specific care and... Um, really, for experienced hobbyists, you know, who actually, you know, get have an understanding of, you know, how the tanks work and stuff like that. This. this is not something that a, a new tank owner should go and pick up. So, all that said, let's kind of start, you know, a little bit at the beginning with how you actually select a healthy specimen. And I know we've we've kind of talked about this a little bit so far. Um, so. You know the stuff that we've talked about right now is, you know, making sure that we've got you know complete tissue and then it goes all the way down to the base. Um, So, Mm -hmm. what are the other things? What are some of the other things that uh, we should be looking for, and some of the things that we should stay away from when we're selecting a healthy specimen?
1: I think one of the most common mistakes that people make when purchasing goniophora would be purchasing either a bleached specimen or a dyed specimen. Okay. Uh, The dyed, usually they're dyed a bright fluorescent glowing yellow okay. uh, it's very attractive it, it attracts especially new people to the hobby
2: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of times it's the first coral that someone will buy yep. you can see them all the way across the room and it just attracts your eye yep. um, but uh, you can usually they're easily identified if you compare them to other corals in the tank
2: mm-hmm. but
1: not always I think most if not all, dyed specimens, either beforehand or maybe the dyeing process, bleaches them. Okay. So there there's no brown, no dosantheli uh, in their polyps and tentacles, mm-hmm. which actually causes the polyps to retract about three-fourths of the way into the coral so that it looks like a ball with maybe polyps that stick out a, an inch or so. Gotcha. Um, it's very beautiful, mm-hmm. but... If you know what a healthy specimen looks like, then you would stay clear of of a dyed specimen. You'd recognize it immediately.
0: Gotcha. So um, we want to stay away from um, bleached ones, which, needless to say, they're uh-huh. gonna they're gonna look real white. Um, right. And we want to stay away from anything that's got a real exotic fluorescent color to it, because they're likely to be dyed.
1: Right. Right.
0: Um, now, some of the green uh, species, if
1: they are bleached, meaning that they lack those in uh-huh they can be a bright green color. Okay. Um, but that's not necessarily dye. That would be more something like uh, green fluorescent pigments um, that concentrate in the coral. But whenever they lose the the brown, whenever they lose the zoanthellae, then all you're left with the green, and that also gives a, a fluorescent appearance. Gotcha. Which is also not healthy.
0: Okay. So at this point, probably something that if you are interested in trying to keep a Goniopora species uh, or a species of Goniopora in your tank, it, you know, again, just like with everything else, probably more so here, a good amount of research is research is going to be required. And in that research, get a good idea of what these things look like. Uh, check out various websites, and because uh, there's there's a whole bunch of pictures all over the place. Um, do you have pictures at your website that could identify each of these different types? Um, Do you have any bleached specimens versus um, healthy specimens? I
1: I do. Uh, There is a a photo gallery on the website. I have tried to collect uh, various photos. Some of them, there's a a database section, and then there's a troubled specimen section. Okay. To to reference a healthy, or actually what an unhealthy specimen looks like, you'd go to the Troubles to the troubled specimens section. Gotcha. So, and if somebody is interested a, in
0: in what these look like, then they can go to your website and they can kind of take a look at um, right. some of those pictures. So, what right. are some of the other things that uh, that we should look for or stay away from when when selecting a healthy specimen?
1: Uh, you'd want to make sure that the coral has good inflation, mm-hmm. that the body, the, the tissue around the body is inflated, that the polyps are extended, a natural color. It, you can look at the tissue perimeter to see if there are new polyps that have grown. If it's a very thin tissue, almost to where you can see the skeleton showing through, uh, that could be a sign of starvation. Okay. And of course you'd want to look for any bleaching mm-hmm. or dyed areas. Uh, a lot of times whenever the coral has been exposed to too much light or, or a high light intensity, there's a spot on top of the coral that has been damaged where the polyps are gone, and maybe a little algae is forming,
2: uh-huh. but you can't
1: really see that unless the coral's retracted. Right. Um, so you also want to inspect the coral. If you decide to buy a particular specimen, you you want to inspect it before it's dropped into the bag. Yeah. Some of the other uh, things to look for might be spots of recession, other spots of recession, um, either on the
0: top or at the base.
1: Right. Uh, it, actually, you could look at other corals that are around uh-huh that goniopora because some of them might extend sweeper polyps or tentacles, sweeper or tentacles. Thingies, fingers or yep. uh-huh and create wounds on the on the coral i i that's about it
0: <laughs> okay well no and that that's a great start for uh for people to kind of start getting an understanding of uh things that we we need to look for and uh things that we need to stay away from so let's say we find a specimen it looks real good. And we want to take it home. Um, so two things that I want to talk about in this next section here. Um, you know, basically the first thing is how do we acclimate it and what kind of um, tank setup are we, are we looking at for, for these, uh, mm-hmm. lighting, stuff like that? Um,
1: I, some of the common mistake after purchasing Goniapora, you take it home, uh, would be to put it in the tank, in the bag, acclimate it to temperature, and then set it anywhere in the tank uh Goniopora require a more in-depth routine acclimation procedure than that.
2: So you're and actually and that's
1: because the, they are they're very sensitive. They're sensitive to the water flow, they're sensitive to the lighting, um they're sensitive to handling and my procedure that I use that I I haven't failed with once yet and and actually I kind of have a rule for myself that if the if the corals extended in the fish store it ought to be extended in my tank within 24 hours. Okay. And of, with a proper what what I believe is a proper acclimation, it should be extended in 24
0: hours. Okay. So now you're um, you're basically saying get it temperature acclimated Um, what about like, uh, you know, the drip acclimation or, you know, making sure you're adjusting for pH. I mean, you just temperature acclimate it and then plop it in your tank. No, no, that's okay. I thought that's what you said. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, no, that that would be a a common mistake. Yeah. To think that.
0: That's kind of how I was going. I was like, wait a minute. Right. No, I'm sorry about that.
1: That would be a common mistake would be to just drop it in the tank after temperature acclimation Mm -hmm. like you would fish. Right. Um, a lot of people look at Goniopora as being a hard coral because it has a calcareous skeleton. Right. But really, it should be treated more like a soft coral or, or polyps
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it, 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 that's it, mainly polyps.
2: Right. And
0: it's and all, all of, over its surface is, is these polyps. Uh-huh. Um, the
1: acclimation procedure that I go through would be to, to place the coral in a bowl in a small bowl, like a cool whip bowl, okay. to where the water will just barely cover it, and use the bag water, and then slowly replace that that water in the bowl with tank water. And okay. that would acclimate it to, to the temperature and to the water chemistry, the pH and calcium, alkalinity. Um, uh, and then I usually use um, a product by Seachem. Uh, Kent also makes a, a product. It's, it's called Reef Dip. It's kind of an iodine dip, uh-huh. um, and I've never had a problem using that with goniopora. And I've actually used that for extended periods of time on other problems. Uh, the The reef dip will get rid of flatworms
2: mm-hmm. and
1: kind of give you a, a peace of mind that if if there happen to be some type of tissue damage infection, that it also helps that too. It helps to disinfect the coral. Gotcha. Um, Actually, during the dip, I usually go into the tank, and I plan a location for the coral. Uh, you have to think about the water flow. I don't even – if, even if a certain species comes from – a gonian species comes from a higher water flow area in the ocean, I don't think it necessarily means that we need to place it in a higher water flow area in the fish tank and that's because the, the husbandry is going to change. The, the way that you take care of the coral will be different than the kind of care it gets out in the ocean. I okay. think the most important thing is to have the polyps extending, and that's what this whole acclimation procedure is for. Um, they're very sensitive to water flow, and I think um, I plan a place where the water is not completely dead but not real strong and direct.
0: So are we looking for something similar in water flow that we would look for uh, when you know, trying to pick a spot for, say, a bubble tip anemone? We're looking for something where we've got a nice swing motion or uh, a real gentle yeah. current moving through. We need moving water, but just enough to keep the polyps moving, nothing strong and nothing dead.
1: Right. I mean, that's a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, another thing to look for would be, for, of course, lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are using metal halide lighting, you can acclimate them. That, that's par- part of the mystery or the problem with light overexposure is that they can actually acclimate to a higher light source. But over mm-hmm. a period of time, the coral might fade to the point where it's actually bleached. Okay. So you, you what I what I usually do is use some type of a screen material, a black fiberglass door mesh. Mm-hmm. Get it at any hardware store, and I place several layers just to cast a shadow over the over the coral. Um, I have a piece of glass that goes across the top of the tank, and I tape some layers of mesh to that to that glass. And you're basically Good.
0: just doing enough of a spot to shade the one coral,
1: right? Exactly to to keep the most direct rays off, off of, of the coral, okay. and that's just under metal halide. You'd you'd probably want to do that with VHO too especially
0: okay. if you had a lot. Or T5, probably, because right. those are pretty bright, too. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Any intense lightning, probably. Mm. Um,
0: so, and then, basically, you're going to do this uh, as we would with a normal light acclimation, and then, over a period of time, you're going to peel off these layers, right? Right. How right. Off, How would you? Is it something that you would peel off one every week, one every couple days?
1: I usually do it um, one every, say, week.
0: Okay, over the course uh, of... Yeah, probably three weeks okay so basically um you know again I, not that i'm holding you to this is is you know gospel or anything but basically what right. we're saying is we're gonna we're gonna have about three layers on there uh-huh. you could probably go for whatever and then over the course of you know three or four weeks we're gonna remove one layer at a time and this is something that i've talked about doing regular tank um light acclimation when you're doing a major upgrade in lighting. So it's basically the same concept. The only difference here is you're only putting, say, one circle or a square just to shade that one specimen instead of the entire tank. Uh Uh-huh. Gotcha.
1: Um, There have been some times when I have removed uh, actually all of the shading just to see what would happen. It it kind of depends on the lighting that it came from at the fish store. Okay. Uh, That actually kind of backing up, that would be one thing to look at Whenever you're inspecting the coral before you purchase it, so if it's the sitting the under
0: metal halides in the fish store, um, then and you should be, extended. and it's extended in looking healthy right. based on the stuff that we said earlier. Then it's probably going to be safe to go under metal halides with a less acclimation time versus if it's sitting under, say, power compacts in the fish store. Then you're acclimate and you're going to acclimate it to metal halides. You're going to need more time.
1: Right, right. That's, but I would still. I would always recommend shading them and there are s- several of the species are sensitive enough that if you remove the shading just a little too quickly um say after a day or two and you take away the shading it will almost immediately begin to retract
0: gotcha now so do we have any of the this coral
1: fairly quickly
0: do we have any of these problems when when we're putting into a tank that has power compact lights I mean, should, do we have to go through a light acclimation process?
1: I would say yes with, there's several different species that are a little more sensitive to light So just that, to kind that of be will f- retract and remain retracted for a month okay. if they aren't acclimated.
0: Okay, so basically just to be on the safe side, um, a three to four week light acclimation for any species would be um, the right thing to do or the best thing to do.
1: Right, that's that it might be a little bit long
0: or mm-hmm. might be extreme, but
1: in in my opinion, it it's always safe
0: and gotcha. it's always
1: worked for me. A, a lot of times, I might even remove it uh, within a week and a half. Okay, but there are other times that it's taken even longer than that. Right.
0: And again, when you're removing that and you see, you know, if you remove a layer and you see that the thing retracts its polyps and it hasn't opened up for hours or for a day or two, then. It's probably a good uh, or indication. even a week. Yeah, <laughs> then it's a good yeah. indication that you're you're moving too quick. Right. Exactly. Okay. So you know, kind of kind of moving on a little bit. Um, is there any other items that we that we want to keep in mind for at least a tank setup? I, we're going to get into a couple other things next, but basically we're talking. You know, we've talked about the lighting, um, the water flow. I know we talked earlier about uh, certain chemicals or uh, minerals, stuff like that, trace elements that should be in the water. Is there anything specific you want to mention about that? Desired calcium levels, alkalinity—are they all n- normal with stony corals? You should have, you know, three hundred fifty to four hundred fifty on your calcium.
1: That's pretty much where I've kept mine at uh, the whole time, and
0: so I- it goes along with most of your stony corals as far as the re- uh, those parameters go. Right. Okay. Yeah.
1: And I've, I have done a few experiments where I've put them in just pure fresh water. I, Instant Ocean uh, salt. Using Instant Ocean salt, I, I I use Instant Ocean because I know that whenever I place Goniapora in freshly in a freshly mixed salt um, or freshly mixed salt water, that they will extend in that. Good. Uh, I've I've read or. I guess it's kind of a uh, rumor, mm-hmm. hypothesis that Goniopora need nutrients in the water to extend. And oh. I don't I don't believe that's true uh because I've I've tried it or tested on several different specimens that you place it in fresh water and they will still extend. Gotcha. Um, I think that's the the when purchasing a, a new Goniopora I think that's critical to have them extending as soon as possible. Because that leads to the next process or our next husbandry step would be to feed them.
0: Okay, so now on that note um, about feeding them, let's take a minute and talk about what we, what do we feed them, how do we feed them, and how often do they need to be fed?
1: Well, so most of those questions begin with the type of goniopora you have. Okay. There's, there's some with uh, large polyps and small polyps and long polyps, short polyps, but the Tentacles that surround the mouth can be shorter. You might have large polyp and short tentacle and small mouth, mm-hmm. which would mean that it might have a little more trouble capturing food, capturing the food that you're feeding it.
0: Okay. Um,
1: so, the, the figure out what types of food to use and how you're going to, to actually feed the coral would depend on the size of polyps, size of mouths, and the length of the tentacles.
0: Okay, now it's a good thing that you're 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 kind of bringing it up here because I think the point that you're getting to is, um, for a long time, at least I know that when I was starting with these, uh, the understanding was you know something that you kind of alluded to a little bit ago that they like dirty water and that they're just filter feeders. Now you've actually come to a slightly different conclusion from that, haven't you? Exactly.
1: Yeah i i don't I don't believe in in what I call the dirty water philosophy at all. Right. Um, I I do believe, and and there's I think it 's important to, to define what a nutrient for goniopora is,
0: yes, and you know that 's a good point because nutrient rich and I think we 've talked about it a little bit before in the past shows uh, about nutrient rich and what that actually means nutrient rich in in the in the general sense in the tank we 're referring to your your nitrate levels. Um, stuff like that. Now, what we're talking about here, what you're specifically alluding to, is that what what these corals are actually going to be eating is stuff that's very similar to what other corals are going to be eating. Now, depending on the polyp size, that could actually change. If we're dealing with large, poly- larger polyps that have a larger mouth, you could feed something larger, uh, I mean, uh, literally probably up to the size of a small mycid shrimp or even a brine shrimp. Um, exactly. But then going smaller when you've got some of the species with the smaller polyps and the smaller mouths, then we're going down to, to stuff small like uh, rotifiers and um, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like cyclopses and various zooplanktons. Right, exactly. Gotcha. Uh, um, some of the
1: foods that I've experimented with, uh, a- actually, there's kind of a, a debate or a, um, a feeding philosophy between... Whether Goniopora eat or consume phytoplankton, or whether they consume zooplankton, or or whether they need both both to satisfy their nutritional needs,
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, just by watching different species, different specimens feed, I really I I can't identify a feeding reaction to phytoplankton. Whenever I have tried to feed phytoplankton, right. I feed I've fed. Um, many different types of zooplankton in in other types of small foods, such as shaved uh, seafoods, uh, powdered flake foods, freeze-dried foods soak, soaked in water first,
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, freeze-dried copepods and freeze-dried rotifers. Mm-hmm. And I, I do see a feeding response to those, a definite feeding response. Uh, DT's, oyster eggs, and cyclopes.
0: Okay, so with that information, let's kind of talk a little bit about exactly how you feed them in your tank and the kind of stuff that you feed them. Now, something that's important when you get a new specimen in there is not only do you have to do a light and tank acclimation, but you have to go through a certain type of feeding or food acclimation process. Can you want to explain that real quick?
1: Yeah, um, that's a good way to put it. Many times a new specimen doesn't necessarily begin to react to the foods that you're feeding it immediately. Uh, I think part of this is, is that their nematocysts, the stinging cells in their tentacles, aren't quite functioning properly. I think they've uh, just the... The,
0: the shipping process is, is, the is shi- kind of...
1: The shipping process and, and the time that it takes to come from the ocean to the fish store to your tank,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in that time, they might have, the, the coral, the polyps, the tentacles might have regressed slightly, uh, to the point where they can't actually grab the food. I've noticed this in, in quite a few instances.
0: Okay, so um, basically what we're saying here is um, if you've got a new ganiapori, you can't just start throwing in brine shrimp and expect it to start feeding it. You actually have to do something. What is that something that we have to go through?
1: Well, I, I like to start feeding the coral with more of a, of a, a liquid food. Okay. A liquid with very small particles. Now is this
0: something um, like the uh, I know I've seen this before, I haven't actually used it but I know there's a certain companies that sell liquid invertebrate foods for like filter feeders and stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Similar I okay. guess.
1: Those, those are those, I, I'm, I haven't experimented with those okay, mainly so because what, I've tried to stick with more concentrated foods such as cycle
0: So basically you're going through and you're, you're going to use very small particulate food pieces um, either ground up or shaved real finely. Now, uh, when you go zooplankton through... Of food. Zooplankton. Yeah, exactly. Now, when you right. go through this, are you actually spot feeding it directly to that or do you feed it to the tank and allow the the uh, coral to pick it up through the water movement or something like that? Um, I usually prepare the food first mm-hmm. uh, to to make it more liquid
1: because I think that the Liquid or the juices in the food actually help to elicit a feeding response. Okay. Uh, for instance, I, I take cyclopes and I I mash it with the back of my spoon.
2: Okay. Uh, in a
1: bowl uh-huh. before I feed it, I take cyclopes. Uh, sometimes I take uh, shaved shrimp. Uh, sometimes I use a, a concentrated rotifer diet. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, this is small, something familiar. Bees, bees oyster eggs, that's that's a good product to use.
0: Yeah, anybody that's familiar with doing um raising uh you know f- uh fish fry, sorry, uh, baby yeah, fish exactly. and stuff yeah. like that. One of the common uh-huh. things that that we use is you have like those old-style medicine grinders where you have that cup, that marble cup with the tool and you just kind of oh, ground yeah. up the flake food uh-huh. before cuz they they can't take anything big. So you can do the same kind of thing here. Um, with you know, your various uh, zooplankton type foods your your oyster eggs your golden pearls your uh Cyclopsies, or your shaved exactly. or ground up uh regular fish foods uh or, uh-huh. uh, t- or seafoods.
1: put in put in the blender some people use a, a blender mush mm-hmm. uh, i i don 't blend mine yet I probably should it 'd probably work just the same but I think during the research, in order to really identify what a feeding response is, uh, that's why I've just started mashing it in order to keep it small and concentrated amounts. Okay. Um, And and then over the period of a few weeks of feeding kind of a a liquid, very concentrated food, depending on the species, if it has a larger mouth and and longer tentacles, eventually it will eat, uh, say, for instance, whole uh, mice's shrimp.
0: Gotcha. And you don't have to uh, grind so up the stuff of as much. Four flake
1: food. Um, and I, I have used uh, powdered flake food rubbed together in my fingers to yeah. to yeah. make like a real fine powder. Mm-hmm. I've noticed um, I used Formula One, the Ocean Nutrition Formula One yep. food, and, and uh, they actually feed on that.
0: Excellent. And
1: so it's, it's not so much that you can just buy Goniopora, put it in your tank and then start feeding it. There is kind of a an acclimation period to the food that normally takes place. Sometimes you can get lucky and, and it'll just start eating right away, but most of the time uh, it requires a, a kind of a process, a little bit of an acclimation
0: period. So now, when going through this acclimation, this feeding acclimation process, and you have this all mixed up and it's all ready to be used, uh, is this something that again, do you, do you just kind of take it and pour it into the tank, or do you use something like a a turkey baster in, and and kind of spot feed right on the tentacles or right in that area? Do you cut the pumps? Mm-hmm. Do you leave the pumps on normal? Um, I,
1: I've oh, I've used a turkey baster just a little bit i i think it's kind of broad uh it's not it's not direct to the target enough for me i use uh i used to use actually a big 60 cc horse syringe with some hard airline tubing attached to the end of it um but now uh, just like a five millimeter five milliliter syringe out of a salifert Yep. the oh,
0: alkalinity kit yep. I think yeah they the come equipment. in the calcium test kits and all that stuff too, yeah, For, I know right. exactly what you're talking about
1: I use some some soft airline tubing to attach a hard a longer hard piece of airline tubing to that syringe and it works perfect
0: okay, so uh, then you're, are you are you almost and
1: you already got it and it works perfect.
0: are you doing just like kind of like we would do with like a sun coral or something where you actually uh-huh. almost feeding not every one of the polyps, but you're trying to feed the polyps individually.
1: I try to feed as many individual polyps as I really have the patience to. Right, and and Uh,
0: anybody that's seen a ganiapura knows that we're we're talking, there's a load of polyps in there, and that can be a rather difficult thing to do. Yeah, Yeah, exactly,
1: but um, I I do that, I I do try to feed as many individual polyps because of the way that they actually take the food down, I, I have loaded up, a single polyp. One, another one of my experiments. Loaded up a single polyp with as much food as I could, mm-hmm. as it would, as it would take. It backed up in the, it, it backed up from the from the coralite, from the skeleton coralite, uh, about a quarter inch,
2: okay, or or more.
1: And I watched it over the period of a day or two, and it kind of slowly turned black, and slowly, I guess, dissolved was, was uh, absorbed by the coral or broken down. Gotcha. Um, and so one, one polyp can only
0: handle, handle so much. I think,
1: so much food. And if you have a, a larger colony, then it helps the coral to feed as many polyps as as you really
0: can. Gotcha. Okay, so to just kind of recap the feeding a little bit, uh, the first thing that you mentioned is when we're bringing in a new coral, we have to go through a feeding acclimation process. and This is a process where you start basically using um, a real fine ground-up food, uh, zooplankton type food, cyclops ease, golden pearls, oyster eggs, uh, some ground-up fish food, various types of seafood mixed up in kind of target-fed to the polyps. And right. then moving forward, I'm um, I, I, you know i going to make the assumption that as you go through this process, as the weeks or months go on, um, you don't have to grind it up as much. And you're eventually going to get to a point where they're going to be able to take, depending on the species, larger pieces of food. They'll probably be able to take baby brine shrimp, um, cyclops ease that's not mushed up at all. Uh, and then getting into some of the species that have a larger mouth, you're actually going to be able to feed them – Um, they'll actually eat full brine shrimp, and even um, some of them will take a full mycid shrimp. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But part of it, though, you you still have to have some type of a a little bit of a liquid, uh, something to induce a, a feeding response, something that's kind of liquid so that the coral can Taste, yeah, kind food of get the before taste of it the actually water. has it in its mouth, yeah,
0: and anybody that uses garlic extract when they 're doing their fish food can kind of relate to this because. When you get that into the water, you notice that your shrimps and you know I, I know in my tank, the snails come burrowing out of the sand uh-huh, the exactly. star my serpent stars come out from underneath the rocks, the shrimp come out, and <laughs> they kind of get that taste you know the the flake food's not there, but that garlic in the water just it triggers them all to come out so basically you're talking about the same thing here right what you're talking about is trying to uh initiate a feeding response by adding this liquid or Whatever small mushed up food into the water, get it to circulate around, and then from that they'll actually you know start consuming larger bits of food that you may be putting into the water also. Right. Perfect. Right. Um- Okay, well, let's let's kind of move on a little bit from there. Is there anything else that we want to mention about overall tank maintenance with this care? I know that we've been through some pretty good detail on a lot of these different topics. Is there, you know, we're going to get into one more kind of advanced topic before we before we end the show. So before we get into that, is there anything else that you want to throw in about tank maintenance before we move on?
1: Um, I I guess it it of course is kind of almost common sense that it would be better. To keep Goniopora in an established tank. Yeah. Uh, I I do uh, have a tank that has a, a refugium and a sump with mm-hmm. macroalgae and different types of filtration. Mm-hmm. I have another type of tank that I've been keeping Goniopora in that is a bare bottom with just live rock and a in a skimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, but both both of those tanks have been established for quite a while. A, a new tank, especially from from the Feeding from having to feed the coral, a new tank might not be able to process that food immediately. Yeah. That extra food. Yep. Uh, it's not a lot of extra food, but it would be like dropping a, a cube or two of mysha shrimp in three, once every three days.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. You
1: know, which we might want to backtrack and, and add that in as far as a, a feeding regimen or schedule it would be once. I would recommend once feeding the coral once every three days.
0: Okay. Okay, well, let's kind of, again, we're, we're kind of pushing time a little bit, so let's yeah. kind of move into um, the last item that we wanted to talk about. Um, and this is going to be, I know a lot of the stuff we've talked about has been kind of advanced stuff, but let's move into a little bit of a more advanced topic uh, and talk about goniopora reproduction or fragging. And kind of what I'm looking for here is, can this coral become hobby-sustained like a lot of the other stony corals out there? Is it possible to do uh, fragmentation or reproduction of these corals in our tanks?
1: Uh, I'd say there are certain species. Actually, it kind of depends on the growth form. I believe there's, there are certain species that, that are more encrusting or submassive uh-huh. uh, that probably lend themselves a little bit better to being fragged. Right. So some of the more difficult species, the the Stokosai, I'm not sure if it will ever really become hobby-sustainable.
0: You mean those are the ones that are like the the hemispherical? Uh, right. Yeah. Right.
1: They're already difficult enough to keep. Right. And they they do reproduce by forming uh, buds. Drop them. Yeah, budding. Uh, I, I call them goniophytes. <laughs> um, I, I don't like to call them Baby Goniopora, right, right. There's got to be some type of a scientific-sounding name <laughs> to, to label them with. So well, I you just came up with Goniopolis. a good one, Goniophytes. Uh, that works for us. <laughs> um, I they do say, for instance, I, one of my specimens has 15 of these buds on it, and it's dropped two already. And actually, the two are turning one year old this month.
0: Oh, really? So um, you actually are getting new specimens out of this baby Gonioporas. Uh-huh yeah now, after a year how how big are they? I mean we are they still really smaller?
1: They are a little bit smaller than a, a one the one in particular is a little bit smaller than a golf ball. The other one i I did an experiment with, and I glued it to a rock uh, whenever it came off of the colony and it does not seem to have done as well okay um, I'm not sure if it's because i actually it's a free living specimen that dropped these off. And I tried to glue it to a rock to see if it would keep its original growth form or if it would try to encrust the rock
2: uh-huh. and for the most
1: part part it 's tried to keep the original growth form, but it just has not grown near as as fast rapidly or successfully as the other one that, that so I one of the
0: one of the issues with these is you know after a year we 're only talking about a golf golf ball size yeah I mean, or smaller yeah so we 're talking about you know a, a specimen that. You know, first of all, it's very difficult to keep. Second of all, um, is not a fast-growing uh, species. So even if you are getting some kind of budding or you get a, a specimen that, or a growth form that you can actually fragment, these are not something that are, are going to be growing fast. It's no. not gonna, you're not going to be able to have a high supply of them.
1: Right, and oh, over time, over generations of um, goniophytes, producing goniophytes, uh, producing more of them over over a, a period of time i that question of whether they would be uh, sustainable in the hobby or, or be able to uh, not be taken so so many of them be taken from the ocean uh-huh. I, I don't i don 't know if that i can 't answer that right now gotcha i, I yeah. just I kind of tend to think that those particular species are already too difficult to keep them gotcha, um, gotcha. i don 't think they 'll somehow evolve but some other species that are uh, submassive or encrusting, they are actually quite a bit easier to take care of. Mm-hmm. And um, one experiment I've done is, is to try to actually propagate one, uh, cut, cut the rock that it was on very close to the tissue perimeter to see if the tissue would kind of encrust onto that rock. Uh-huh. And due to the growth form, uh, i actually believe fragging them is better than trying to get them to grow onto another surface and then cutting that surface off.
0: Gotcha, because that's, yeah, uh, that's a technique that I know is used with other types of corals.
1: Right, exactly, because it, it, it does seem, it, it, the goniopora does kind of grow like soft coral polyps
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: in a way, but it also has the, the skeleton that, that grows in what I would consider to be kind of a, a magnitudinal growth form, kind of like a, a marble that grows larger
2: three-dimensionally, right. uh-huh.
1: and so as it's growing, as it's trying to encrust onto a surface, it's also growing more massive, uh, vertically, right? Uh-huh. Um, in in all different directions, so it, it's actually, I believe it's probably better to fragment the coral and mount it to a, a stable rock.
0: And let and it grow from expect, there.
1: Right, exactly, and, and not expect the tissue to encrust on that rock, but actually expect the the coral just to kind of form its own rock as it grows larger, and its rock would be its skeleton, of
0: course. Excellent, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope that makes sense. No, no, it does. I mean, basically what, what we're getting at is, you know, as you mentioned, with a lot of this, uh, specifically soft coral and, and some other types of coral, placing them next to another rock will actually cause them to start moving over and encrusting on that. And what you can do, and I've done this with Xenia. In fact, this is the way I, I did my first Xenia fragging, is you basically you take another rock and you put it right next to it where the tissue is in contact with the other piece. And what will happen is it will start growing on that other piece, and then, you know, after a little bit of time, you can kind of separate them and cut and make a cut. And you'll end up with two pieces. You'll have the original colony, but then you'll have this new rock that's got a, a small portion of tissue on it at that point, And that remaining tissue will, will grow. And what you're saying is that, with, not, that we not do, not, that yeah, do, it. You do not want to do it this way because of the way that they grow. What you actually want to do when you have these that have a growth form, that is, you know, that promotes this type of growth is you actually want to cut, a, you know, actually frag a piece off and then mount it on this rock and let it grow from there. Right, and, so, and you
1: don't necessarily have to mount the tissue so that it's touching the rock.
0: You just want to mount the, the, the skeletal base of the part on there and let the tissue go on its own.
1: Right, exactly, because it will, it, it will form its own base, uh-huh. I guess. Its yeah. base will increase in size. As it grows. Magnitudinally,
0: right. Great. Okay, John, well, um, we're pretty much uh, long out of time now, so I wanted to take a minute and thank you uh, for being on the show with us this week. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to throw in real quick before we before we uh, finish it up?
1: I guess kind of in conclusion, um, I hope that the work that I've done does somehow in some small way help to lower – the mortality rate of Goniapora in captivity.
0: Yeah, so you know, and I do know. I know that there's a lot of uh, talking reef members that do keep, and I know that we have one member specifically um, that does is actually become, you know, has a lot of these it keeps a lot of these different uh, Goniapora. So I, I know that this is going to benefit a lot of people. And like you said, it, it's one of those hard species that a lot of people get, and they just there's such misconceptions about how to take care of them. Hopefully, this this does yeah. help people
1: yeah there's a there's a lot of confusion and contradictory information
2: mm-hmm.
1: especially for 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 anyone that wants to keep going in pora and i'm I hope that that the research that I've done I can put into kind of a coherent step by step formulate or d- develop a system of husbandry that can be used on a variety of the different species mm-hmm. and then it, because I have twelve different species now that seem to have done well under the system. And as time goes on, I hope to kind of identify some of the more subtle differences between the species so that we can have kind of some more pinpoint information about the different species. But basically, as it is now, there's so little that's really known about Goniopora that really they're just called by color. You've got purple Goniopora and green Goniopora and a red gonipora. Mm-hmm. but there's several different species of purples, there's several different species of greens, and they're not necessarily the same growth form, they don't have, the, they're not necessarily cause the same amount of problems, or have the same amount of problems,
2: Right.
0: But yeah.
1: I, I hope to help sort out how to actually keep gonipora
0: alive. Excellent. So, everybody that's uh, interested in more information, of course, head over to... Uh, to John's website ganiapora.org um a lot of information there a lot of pictures and stuff like that um if you uh, are going to be at iMac uh, check out uh, John's information there uh, and, uh, you know, if, if there's any follow-up questions, you can either, you can post them in the show like everybody does. There's a, a post for each one of the shows and people usually follow up there with it, with questions and answers. Uh, of course, you can head over to John's website if you want and go over there and he's got some forums set up there too. Um, so I think that's going to wrap it up. Again, John, I wanted to thank you for taking the time and sharing your work with Ganiapura's with us. Uh, and hopefully we can get another chance to kind of, Maybe go into a little bit more detail uh on some maybe some specific things after you you do IMAC or after you get some one of your you know package or some do, you know real more documentation together or your uh more information if you want to go through that. Uh, definitely we can yep, probably work on another show.
1: That would be great. And uh thank you very much, Rob, for having me on the program. It's been a pleasure.
0: Excellent. All right, well, uh thank you and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Good luck at uh, IMAC. Okay, thank you. Okay, and that was John Kelly joining us to talk about the Ganyapura and uh, just to kind of move on real quick i know this has been a long show and i had a whole bunch of more stuff that i wanted to throw in there a lot of follow-ups to the video cast that i had produced uh, earlier and released over the last couple weeks so what i'm going to do is i'm going to wrap up a lot of the questions and answers that came from those video casts and i'm going to put them into a separate show i'm going to try to get that out next week no promises uh it's probably going to be a bonus show and not the main show of the week but it's something that i was going to try to cover in this show but as i mentioned the interview ran a lot longer than i expected but that's okay because i think there's a lot of great information in there so we're going to pretty much skip the rest of that uh, as far as the community update goes this week uh not a whole lot for you because uh, basically for timing concerns so if you have questions comments introductions anything like that make sure you call them into the voicemail line uh the number is 586-486-3357 and uh also make sure you head over to the forums and uh Get registered there, get some posts going, and join everybody in the discussion. So that's going to wrap up the show this week, and uh, I will talk to you very soon.